This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. Iron Source are not a spinach-based nutrition company, as their name might suggest, but are actually a game tech company which builds technologies that help you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor of Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on over to ironsource.com, ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Folks, most mobile advertisers are increasingly aware of the dangers of app install fraud. In fact, global financial exposure to app install fraud in the first half of 2020 was $1.6 billion. And even though the mobile ad industry has grown exponentially to defend itself properly against ad fraud, the potential amount of damage is still extremely high and fraudsters will always want a piece of that pie. Now, fraud methods are constantly evolving and adapting to solutions in the market. Still, staying protected and applying sophisticated anti-fraud solutions are very much a necessity for all marketers. As you all know, our good partner AppsLiar offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. AppsLiar is also perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive that marketing success. And listen, it's not only us at here at Deconstructor of Fun raving about apps liar. Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix, Huge Games, all of these companies and many more are using apps liar to boost their business. So go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution and fraud protection you can trust. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Today, we are joined by Susan O'Connor, who's one of the most experienced game writers in the industry, having written scripts for award-winning blockbuster hits such as Tomb Raider, Far Cry 2, and Bioshock. Probably a few games you guys have heard of. But the gaming market is saturated. 2018, over 9,000 games were released on Steam. Last year, there were over 900,000 games on the App Store. So how can studios break through the noise and get players to notice their games? Well, an Entertainment Software Association survey has shown that 57% of video game purchasers surveyed considered story as a primary influence for purchase. So given that, today we're talking about story in video games, and specifically, one, the opportunity for story, two, how does a studio figure out if story is the right strategy for them, three, how do you integrate story well in games, as well as differences for HD, meaning PC and console versus mobile. Uh, next, what should the writing process look like for a game? Should it come at the end or should it be developed from the very beginning? What are considerations for when you start writing? How does a writer generally interface with other parts of the team? How do you think about developing a good or interesting character for a game? What are examples of great characters in games? And finally, what are general lessons from writing that we can apply to games? But before we dive into all of that, and sounds like we're going to have a very great and deep discussion, Susan, I thought just given your very excellent background, if you could tell us a little bit more about your trajectory and career in writing in games. Sure, I'd be happy to. And um, thank you so much for bringing me on. I'm really excited to talk to your listeners. 
I've been um, looking yeah. forward to having you on, Susan, so thank you. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, my favorite topic of all time. Yes, I'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll give you the really short version, which is I always knew I wanted to be a writer and uh, could not figure out how writers got jobs or got paid. So after floundering for a few years after college, I finally decided that I just had to kind of start knocking on doors and see what was out there. And I was really, I mean, as long as the word writing was in the job title, I was interested. So I was talking to lots of different people and I just happened to find a small studio here in, here in Austin and they specialized in making kids games. And they were just about to start working on a slumber party game where for girls where there were gonna be four little girl avatars on the screen the whole time, like talking like little girls do at a slumber party. <clears throat> and of everybody who applied for the job, I was the only one who'd ever actually been to a slumber party. So I was a subject matter expert and that's how I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> that was my glamorous debut into the world of video games. So yeah, so first I worked on that. I worked on a slumber party game and then later I worked on Gears of War. There's a definite obvious connection there. <laughs> yeah, games have really taken me on a journey. I've, I've been some places I never thought I'd go, that's for sure. It's been awesome. In terms of some of the other big titles that you worked on, how did you get involved in some of those bigger projects? Well, you know, I think it's just like literally anything else in life, it's who you know. I mean, okay. obviously, you know, I like telling my slumber party story because games are such a high profile industry now. And a lot of students I talk to are like, how do I get on the next Halo? And I was like, don't look for the next Halo. Look for like the next slumber party game. You know, like start small, let yourself right. grow and then yeah. move up the ranks. And I, you know, you meet people early in your career and they go on to become producers at, at bigger studios. And when that bigger studio needs a writer, that producer goes, you know, I know somebody. Oh, right. <laughs> and so, you know, one thing kind of led to another and I worked on a, I got a job working on a real-time strategy game and it was kind of goofy, low budget, but really hit it off with the executive producer. So we stayed in touch. And then, you know, it's hard to know how to connect the dots exactly. I mean, you sort of, you sort of go along in your career and then you make these leaps and it really is somebody that you know that makes that leap possible. So wasn't a straight shot from slumber party game to Bioshock, but there were definitely like leaps along the way and they were all based on, on relationships. And it makes sense, especially for writing, because I think people have a hard time finding writers. And so it really does just come down to the whisper network. You just ask, you need a writer, you ask your friends like, hey, know anybody? So I think that that helped also. And then, you know, I mean, I go to GDC every year and I know lots of people in the industry and that's probably helped me more than anything. Right. So just kind of diving into some of these topics, I thought we could first start by talking about why game studios need to be thinking about story for games. Mm -hmm. And we don't see a lot of stories, especially in like free to play mobile games. Although interestingly, very recently, I've been seeing more and more story in a lot of the games that I'm playing. Mm. But what's the opportunity in your mind for a story in platforms like free to play mobile, for example? Yeah, well, first of all, I wanna just respect anyone who's thinking like, no way would I put a story in my free to play game. <laughs> like it doesn't seem like a good idea on the surface of it. And honestly, that's why it's a huge opportunity. So I'll unpack that a little bit. So I'll use the example of Bioshock. So before, before Bioshock came along, if you said to somebody, hey, 
first person shooters could be a platform for telling an incredible story. If you said that, you'd get laughed out of the room. Right. It just did not seem possible. Like, how can you possibly tell a story about a hand holding a gun? <laughs> right? It just, yeah. it just seems real dumb, right? Yeah. That person might say, well, you could do it in an action adventure or a role playing game, but definitely not a first person shooter. And then Ken Levine said, hold my beer. And here we are today. So, you know, I think that it's definitely, it hasn't been done to like great effect yet. Although I like to your point, a lot, you're seeing it more and more. I mean, it's a thing that people are really interested in figuring out. And I think that's the key. The figuring out how to tell a good story in a platform like, like mobile or free to play, it's a puzzle. And you almost have to approach it as a puzzle. But if you're the, if you're the guy who cracks the code and solves that puzzle, you are going to be the one that stands out in the marketplace because the thing is about story, it's like the universal connector. Everybody loves stories. Even like your most like logical AI programmer guy like goes home and watches Game of Thrones, right? Like everybody loves stories. And so if you can find a way to tell a good story, your base of potential players just grows and grows and grows. And also stories are great. It's sticky, right? It brings people yeah. back. What's really great about story is that it creates meaning for gameplay. It gives the things that you're doing in the game meaning. And meaning, again, it creates that stickiness. It makes you want to come back. You start to care about the characters. You want to see what happens next. That increases the playability of your game. So it's an, right. it's an awesome opportunity. And everybody's got a phone in their pocket. Like, yeah. you know, you're not limited by people who, only by people who decided to spend $400 on a console. Right. And not to get too executive, but I think the other thing that some people might miss is just the power and value, if you're talking about defensibility and strategy for a company, of mm -hmm. the strength of IP. So what, why is Nintendo valuable or... You know, why is Blizzard valuable because of the power of the IP? And I think that when you're mm -hmm. building the value of that IP, without story, the IP isn't really anything, right? Right. So, that it's yeah. so, that's so smart. And I think and it, you can look at it in terms of you don't have like incredibly gorgeous graphics necessarily, you know, and you don't have the advantage that like movies have of charismatic actors on the screen. Like you don't have a lot of those tools for creating an, an emotional connection in mobile. But what you do have is story and story can work on in a text adventure. Like it can be right. literally just words on the screen. Right. So from right. there up story is a, is a tool at your disposal. It's just a question of learning how to use it. And yeah, to your point, the defensibility, right. It just, it makes you more as a company, it'll make you more resilient and stronger. Right. So how does a studio figure out if story is the right strategy for them or not? Yes. So really good question, right? So this is definitely like thinking strategically. So I'll walk through the way I would think about it. And again, you know, this isn't for everybody. Walking in with your eyes wide open, I think is the key to success here. So the first place I look for everything is I look at the player, right? Like I try to understand who, if I was running a studio, I'm like, okay, who plays our games? Because while everybody loves story, some people may love it more than others, right? So like, like women in their 30s are probably more interested in like in-depth storytelling than like a 12-year-old boy. No shade on a 12-year-old boy. We just have different interests at different stages, right? I mean, you could definitely tell a story to a 
the kind of story you would tell to one audience is different than the kind of story you'd tell to another. And so you would have to kind of look and say, okay, is this an audience that would, that would say yes if they found a story in the game, right? Or would they just click past it? So if you feel like, okay, my audience is into story and if we gave it to them, they'd love it. That's the first check, right? Then the second thing to look at is, does your particular style of game support storytelling? And again, a text adventure works really well. But you know, if your game's heavy on like resource management, that might be actually a little bit of a trickier sell. And here's why. You have to balance out players' attention. If the gameplay is really mentally demanding and taxing and requires a lot of calculating and such, that doesn't leave a lot of cycles left over for, for the story. Like this is something I see in console games too. Like you, how, the way you balance out story and gameplay is you sort of like, when you're ramping up gameplay, you ramp down the story. And when you're ramping down the gameplay, you're ramping up the story. There's this sort of dance that goes between the two. Right. And so if you have a game that is engaging without being mentally taxing, you're a good candidate for, for story content. So that would be the second thing I would think about. Does that make sense before I go on? Yeah, no, 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 that totally makes sense. And then given that, how do you integrate story well into games? Mm. So, I mean, the simplest way to think about it, I think, is that like, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start really broad and then we'll go into more details. But basically, story takes the audience on a journey. And a game also takes a, a player on a journey, right? And the journey is to the the win state, but it's a journey nevertheless. And the goal is to like get the gameplay journey and the story journey to be working together, to kind of be on a road trip together is really the way I would describe it. Like you wanna put gameplay and story in the car, <laughs> gameplay is driving and story's in charge of the radio and the snacks and buying the gas. And then they, they hit the road together. <laughs> so like, obviously that's a metaphor that's not enough to go on, but it's a place to start. It's a, it's a way to think about it. And so I'm, I'm kind of specific about the idea that the gameplay is in the driver's seat because the other side of that is, and this might be stating the obvious, but gameplay comes first. So a bad story is anything that breaks the spell that okay. gameplay casts, right? So the way I think about it is, here's how I approach it, is that I go, okay, the way to get story and gameplay aligned is that we need to look at like what, what is that journey that the player goes on and I mean that in terms of like an emotional journey, right? Like when we play a game, games are supposed to be fun, right? And yeah. fun is a feeling. Yeah. So we're really talking about feelings here. How is this, how do I feel when I play this game? Am I like aggressive and aggro and, you know, ready to, ready to kill? Or like, am I kind of charmed? You know, is it like a peaceful way to pass the time? So maybe it's relaxing. Like those are very different emotional states based purely on gameplay before story ever gets into the picture. And then once you've kind of like put words to that, like it's a peaceful game, uh, it's a soothing game, you know, it's a lovely game, whatever. Then you can start brainstorming, okay, what kind of stories would go with that kind of gameplay experience emotionally? It's almost like matching colors. It's, it. like, it's like your, your gameplay is blue. What goes with blue? Well, white goes with blue and yellow goes with blue and gray goes with blue. And those, those other colors are story types, right? So maybe a detective story would be a good fit, or maybe a love story would be a good fit. 
I just wanted to follow through a little bit more on the point about story being a feeling. And if Great. story is a feeling, and we've got these different platforms where I would say for like a console game where you've got a big screen, you've got loudspeakers. Yeah. Do you think it's easier to convey feeling and story through these different platforms? And then how would you convey feeling when you're talking about, you know, like a small device where folks yeah. may have turned off the sound and things like that? Totally. Yeah. Great question. Well, I think that, well, a couple of things I'd say. Writers working in, in the console world are kind of surprisingly working within the same limitations because players skip cinematics, they turn off the audio so they can concentrate on the gameplay. Like whenever I write a script, I have to work under the assumption that the player doesn't hear a single word I write. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I think that consoles are really good at delivering like the big kaboom feelings, right? Like when you see like wild stuff on your incredible television, right. it's just like shazam, wow, bam, you know, and it's, it's big. You can have, you can deliver big emotions in a game like right. that. And then with a mobile game, you're just, you're gonna deliver smaller emotions, right? Like you're not gonna try to create a moment where like there's a huge dragon who's like menacing an entire city. It's like, it's gonna look silly on a phone, right? right. So, so you don't go for the big kaboom ones, but maybe you go for something smaller, right? Like maybe, a, again, a detective story where you're required to kind of pay attention to details and be patient and question everything. Like the pace of a detective story and the level of attention required for a detective story works better in a mobile space than it does on like a console game. And have you had an opportunity to like look at some of the perhaps more of the more storytelling based or narrative based games on mobile, like choices or episodes or games yep. like that. Mm -hmm. what, what are your current thoughts in terms of how the storytelling experience is being delivered in like a free to play mobile environment today? So I think that they're being smart because they are looking for, they're looking for people who have already solved their problem. So, so what I mean by that is, I just, I'm in the middle of reading this great book called Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. And it okay. just, it's all about, you might've read it. It's so good. It's all about how to make smart decisions faster with more confidence, basically. And it's like, what's the, what is the process that we can use to like make the right decisions at the right time? And one of the ideas they talk about is like, look for people who have already solved your problem. Right. There's nothing new under the sun, right? So there's two ways to look for people who have solved your problem. One, you can go narrow, meaning, okay, if I'm trying to figure out how to tell a story in a game, I'm going to look at other games. But what I think that the people from Choices and Episodes are doing, in addition to that, is that they're going wide, or at least wider. You know, they're looking at, like, comics, and they're looking at uh, graphic novels, and they're looking at, like, cartoons from the 80s, and, right? They're looking for tools that they can borrow, which is super smart for a couple of reasons. One, it makes their lives easier. And two, it's recognizable to the audience. And I think that's really important. Like you want your story to be user-friendly. And if the story, if the player has to learn a whole bunch of mechanics just to like progress the story and click to make it go forward, like they're just gonna get frustrated and give up, right? So you wanna make it as intuitive as possible. And so that's where I think there's a lot of room for innovation. Like if I were, if I ran a studio and a mobile studio and I wanted to put in games, I would like, I would take a skunk works day and I would just try to brainstorm like every single possible way people are telling stories, you know? And I would probably right. end up finding my best solution in some really random corner. 
<laughs> it would turn out the fortune cookies are like the key to success or something, you know? So let's say a studio does decide that story in their game makes sense. So what should the writing process look like for a game? I mean, should it kind of, it, to be honest with you, in my experience, it, it, different game studios trying to integrate story into a mobile game, it usually comes right at the end. It's like, oh, where, where are we going to integrate the story? Or, I, I mean, so what should it look like? Uh, should it develop from the beginning? The end? Like, please let us know how we should be thinking about that writing right. process. Yeah. Well, it's not just mobile. A lot of studios sort of think about story at the end. I mean, honestly, I would say if you want to bring in a story at the end, don't even bother. You're just not going to be happy with the end result. It's, right. it's, it's going to be a lot of tears and not a lot of payoff. So games, and remember the whole idea of the journey, right? Like you want story and gameplay to be working together, kind of traveling down the same road from the jump. And so you can bring in a writer at the beginning. They don't have to be there the whole time. Like to start with story at the beginning doesn't mean hiring a full-time writer from right. day one and have them there until the end. Like I've always thought the best model would be bring in a writer really early on in part to kind of develop trust and relationships with some of the other creatives on the team because that's going to be really important. Develop some kind of shared vision because here's the thing, like the game designers and the, and the writers and the animators and the musicians and everybody, they're all trying to like solve the same problem. They're all trying to create a connection with the player. They're just all using different tools to do it, right? So like where a writer would use plot and character and dialogue, the designer is going to use mechanics and systems and such, right? But so different tools, same goal. So you want to get all these things in alignment, get a vision for how story could work in this game, because it involves thinking about it. It really involves asking different questions, right? Like the que asking the question, how can we wrap a story around this existing gameplay isn't the right question. The other question is like, how can we use story to make this gameplay meaningful? is the different question and that, that starts earlier upstream and then you start coming up with more innovative solutions right so like like for example i'm a big fan of um the idea of hiding the story from the player like instead of making the story really obvious with like cutscenes and on-screen text that covers the screen and kind of shoving it in the player's face which i think most players don't really like yeah i think it's a lot smarter to actually kind of embed the story in the game but don't don't announce it. Let the player discover it. Like letting story kind of be a, re a gameplay reward is, is a really good strategy, right? Because then they feel some sense of ownership over it. Like, oh, I discovered, I found out, I found the clue, right? Or like, hey, you know, all these people are like having a party without me. Why am I not over there, right? Like it's amazing how secrets and suspense can really motivate a player to keep playing. And that that can only be set up if it's set up from the beginning. Right. And then in terms of like just starting the writing, what are some of the considerations when you start writing for a game? Mm -hmm. So I definitely thinking about like, who is your player? What kind of game is this? And what kind of, how does this kind of game make players feel? What kind of tools do we have? Right. So like, I, I just think about it in terms of like, almost like a doctor or a chef, you know, like you've seen those cooking shows where the chefs roll out all their knives yeah. and every knife kind of has a different job. Right. Um, dialogue, usually spoken words are your weakest tool. That's the one I would use last. Right. What other ways do we like, what other tools do we have? Maybe we have environmental storytelling, right? That's a really powerful tool, but maybe less so in mobile. 
can we send the player messages outside of the game as texts? Cool. That's a, that is a dangerous tool, right? Because that can get annoying, but it could also be really powerful if it's used well. So that's like, that's your sharp, dangerous stabby knife <laughs> to be used thoughtfully. So you kind of look at your array of tools. You've got cinematics, you've got on-screen text, you've got atmosphere, music. Music can be a storytelling tool. Um, right. Maybe your best one, who knows, right? Because music conveys emotion better than anything. And so, so you, that's kind of like how I approach it. But in terms of how do you start working together, you really, it, it involves meetings. <laughs> <laughs> it involves sitting down in a room virtually yeah. or in person, you know, with the, with the creatives on the team and be like, okay, what are you trying to make? And right. how can I make it better? So, so maybe we could expand on that a little bit more in terms of like, who are you generally interfacing with in a game studio? Uh, what are the different parts of the team that you need to talk to when you're developing this story? Totally. So traditionally, I usually only talk to a few people on the team, but that's because I, as a consultant, I sort of come in and out pretty quickly. If I was on the project the whole time, I would probably eventually get to know everybody. But right. I definitely, of course, if there are already writers on the team, I talk with them, but often there are no other writers. So I'll sit down with the creative director someone like that, right? Or maybe a narrative director, if they have that on the project or yeah. a lead game designer, someone who has got, you know, real pull with like what the whole experience is going to feel like and right. be like, that's the person that's like my go-to. And then in addition to that, I'm always really hopeful that I can speak to like anybody in the art department, starting with animators. Animators are like the writer's best friends because writers and animators are thinking about the same thing which is, what is this character thinking about, right. <laughs> right? And animators just like answer that question through the animations that they create, you know, like this character is super worried. So they make their brow wrinkled up and, you know, they make them kind of clench their chest, you know, nervous ticks and stuff. Whereas like, I would be answering that same question with like dialogue, like I'm worried, things are scary. What the hell's going on around here, right? So, so the animator and I can really collaborate and make something that's, the whole, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the same thing with the musicians. Um, again, music can carry so much of the emotional burden of, this, of a moment that it frees up the writer to actually write simpler, more straightforward dialogue. And it creates this interesting tension because a lot of times in games, I'm gonna nerd out here for a second, so forgive me, but a lot of times in games, <laughs> there's limited time to tell a story. And so writers are reduced to writing dialogue that's extremely obvious, very on point with a minimum use of words. It's almost like I'm computer talking, right? It's extremely efficient. And the reality is that humans are not efficient. <laughs> humans are rarely, if ever, just conveying information. They're usually like, yeah. Convincing or persuading or seducing right. or arguing or lying, right? That is human behavior and we would all recognize it. And so if, if the writer can share the storytelling, I'm going to say burden, it's not a burden, but if you can share the storytelling load with other people on the team, maybe the musician is telling the truth about a character and the dialogue is all about the lie. Right. Right. So... One question I have is just because writing is artistic. And one mm -hmm. of the things I've seen in my experience looking at art, and I feel sorry for a lot of art directors because usually everybody thinks they're an art director. 
And so like, and so like you know, yep. you've got the CEO of the company, you've got like the lead product manager, and then you have the art director, and everyone's weighing in on, on the art. And yep. sometimes people will empower the art director to make the call on the art. And sometimes you've got all sorts of weird who makes the final call and like in some studios it's just like a cluster of how <laughs> decisions get made yeah. and i'm wondering for you because like let's say you jump on a game and i'm just saying not everybody is cory barlog right and so like and especially for like let's say you're working on a game at a very data oriented place like a zynga where maybe they don't understand story mm -hmm. but they have an opinion so how do those kind of conflicts in terms of how do you determine whether the story is right or not or whether mm -hmm. it's the game. Have you encountered a lot of those conflicts? How do those things kind of get resolved? Yes, 100%. And it is my job to resolve those problems. And okay. the way that I resolve them is I really, and that's such a great question, because when people sort of chime in, that's not because they're being jerks. It's because they want it to be good. And right. again, to your point, like, everybody likes story, right? In the same way that everybody likes art, everyone's got an opinion about it. Like, we've all experienced great art, we've all experienced great stories. And so, of course, we have some ideas about what's possible. So it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of wanting to make things better. Sure. And so at the same time, these people don't want to go through like, they don't want to get a degree in writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what I try to do is I really try to meet them where they're at. And one of the best ways to go from like that headbutting to being more collaborative is to look at other projects. Like right. it, that's where it can become really interesting for them, right? So it's like, well, tell me why you don't like the story. Well, I just think it needs to be more exciting. Okay, like more exciting how? Well, like, can you give me some examples? Well, you know, I just think like, I just want it to feel more like Rayman. Okay, let's look at Rayman and see how they did it, right? And then, then it gets really fun, right? Because then we like pull up a game. I don't know why I said Rayman, it's just whatever, had to say something. You, you pull up whatever game you're talking about, right. and then I can share all this insight that I know I have about how stories work. And I, I can say like, well, the way they got you really excited here, I think is like X, Y, and Z. Do we want to try to do something similar in our game? If we did, here's how that would play out. And it's a way of looking at other projects is a way of, it's like trying on clothes, <laughs> which maybe is a weird metaphor for this audience, but you know, it's like, it might look good on the rack, but it looks like crap on us. So right. let's not, let's not buy that. Let's buy something that fits us and, and it works. And so that's the key, right? The key I think that I try to focus on is without being a pedantic jackass, <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep it sort of like simple and light. You know, I try to demystify the art of storytelling because it, it isn't a, it is not a black art. I am not Gandalf the Grey, right? Like there is some art to it in terms of like whatever, like, yeah, there is some, there's some level of creativity that can't be explained, but there's also a level of this that is just pure hammer and nails. It's right. just craft, right? right? There's just, there are some fundamentals of storytelling. They always apply. Every story is about desire and obstacle. Like that's it. Somebody wants something real bad and they have a hard time getting it. The end. Every story ever told is, is that. Okay. And so being able to talk, I've had to really learn how to talk about fundamentals in a really simple and engaging kind of way <laughs> to, to give, to empower everybody else on the team to be able to talk about story too. It's, right. I mean, that's the thing. If you can make it simple and sort of like snackable, it's really fun. Everybody enjoys it.
Okay. So maybe now talking more operationally, like it, mm -hmm. it, let's say it does make sense to, to integrate story into a game, even a free to play mobile game. So operationally, or executionally, how do you hire a good writer? And then what would a writing team for a game look like? Let's say maybe for a mobile game versus like a big console game. What, what does that typically look like? Sure. So I have seen a wide range in terms of console. Like I just rolled off a project a few months ago and I think there were something like 14 writers on this project. Wow. Like, which I know, thank you, exactly. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Along with some four-letter words, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, um, that's by far the most I've ever seen. Usually, it's more like one and a half, right? Like one person's full-time, and then there's someone like me who comes in on a contract basis to like help out. So you can go from like literally nobody's on staff. You just bring in someone from the outside, and that can work, honestly. Again, it's that model that we talked about. Bring them in off and on throughout the entire life cycle of the project bringing them in early, say, great, bye, see ya, bring them back, you know, six weeks later, bring them back for alpha, bring them back for beta. You just sort of ramp up and ramp down. I think that's, a, that's an excellent model because it, you want to, prevention is an ounce, is what it, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? You want someone who's kind of like in the loop so that right. if things start to go pear-shaped, they can sort of swoop in and really quickly diagnose the problem and fix it. So. Right. So in terms of staffing, I would say it's, it's not the number so much as your level of expertise. Like it's fine to hire a junior writer and this industry lives on junior talent for sure. But okay. I think it's also like a good model would be hire a junior writer to be your full-time person and then bring in a ringer to come in and kind of like help the project and also be a good coach and mentor to your junior writer. Right. Right. So that can be a really smart and that's, that's good for your bottom line too. Like that's good investment because the ringer is going to be expensive, right? But they're also going to be unbelievably efficient and they'll get done in 30 minutes. What might take your junior writer three weeks. Right. So yeah. it's all about like have the ringer share that good advice, kind of have those nerdy writerly conversations with the junior writer so that they're, they have the tools they need to kind of go forth and, and kick ass. Got it. Um, so that's a good model. And then I can talk to you about what to look for in a writer, which I think was your next question. Sure, yeah. So I try to think about this, and this is a, I teach a class in game writing over at the University of Texas at Austin. And so I see a lot of graduating seniors and they're always like, oh my God, how do I get a job writing for games? So it's a question I've thought about a lot. And I really try to see it from the studio's point of view. So I think if I were running a studio and I needed to hire a writer, at the end of the day, I just need to know two things. I need to know, can this person write? And does this person understand games? That's what I think writers need to present to studios when they're being evaluated. And so what that would look like in terms of a portfolio, and if I ran a studio, you can ask someone to generate this stuff for you, right? So you can say, okay, here's what I wanna see from you, potential writer. Um, I wanna see a writing sample. And it doesn't have to be a game writing sample because game writing samples are not readable. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're not supposed to be readable. They're supposed to be integrated with the game and, you know, a spreadsheet's not a script. So right. I, think, I think anything that shows that they can create characters and write a line of dialogue and such are really great. So like a scene from a, a movie or a TV pilot they wrote or something. And right. every writer has got a drawer full of these things. So that's, a, that's actually kind of an easy ask, right? They'll have it ready to show you. 
And then, so once you've sort of checked that first box, like, okay, this person's writing style, I really like, this person's good, they're, they make me laugh, or whatever it is that you're looking for in your writer. Then it's like, okay, do they understand games? Which, if, they're, if they are, let's say, 32 or younger, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just making that number up, it might be more like 38 or 45, I don't even know now, but most, you know, a lot of people have just, games are part of who they are. Like every kid in the 70s watched TV. Well, every kid from the 90s and the 2000s played games. But in terms of them demonstrating that they have a writer's appreciation for games and narrative, the way that you can, they can show you that is that they can do an analysis of a game specifically focusing on the narrative. It can, it's almost like a book report, right? Like just to flash back to middle school. And what's helpful about that is you'll get to see how they think because they're going to be doing on paper what you want them to be doing in the conference room when you guys are problem solving, right? Like, why, how do we make this story work? How, how do we make this character interesting? Analyzing someone else's work shows you the kind of thinking that they're going to bring to their own work. So the two things I would say, so there's three things I would recommend, two for sure, and then third's like bonus. So okay. number one, writing sample. Number two, book report. Number three, I would love to see someone put together an interactive story using something really simple like twine. Okay. Right. And, right. and I'd actually like them to take some, rather than come up with an original story in twine, I think it'd be really smart to take an existing story, like a fairy tale or something and, and make it an interactive experience. Right. Oh yeah. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Cause then the focus isn't on like, is the story good? That's irrelevant. It's here's how I make this story playable, which right. is kind of what you're solving for. And maybe going back to the, to, to the thought that we had discussed earlier about just the potential value of the characters and, mm -hmm. and value of IP. Mm -hmm. you know, so how should we think about developing a good or interesting character for a game? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> this is so awesome. I wish my job was just talking about story all day long. I could do this for a living. So how do you make an interesting character? Well, in the same way that a person is interesting, first of all, and that's, I know it's very simplistic, but it's a nice frame to put around this, right? What makes a person interesting in real life is what makes them interesting in a story. And I did write about this on my blog, so people okay. can go there to, um, to learn more about it. But anyway, the short answer, I guess, would be number one, and these are gonna be really simple questions, but they're deceptively simple. So number one, your character has to want something. And a lot of game characters don't want anything. They just seem to stand around waiting for the player to do something. <laughs> and then the player character, the avatar himself is like, doesn't really seem to want anything until we kind of swing into action and get them moving. But you want somebody in the game to really want something really badly. And my pro tip about this is that like, it's much easier to get the non-player characters to give them really strong desires. Because as a storyteller, you have total control over the NPCs, whereas you have limited to no control over the player avatar. So like a perfect example is Bioshock. Like the player character in Bioshock didn't really want anything. Okay. Right? But Andrew Ryan sure, sure did. Right? So he's an interesting character. So somebody who wants something is inherently interesting. And then the second thing I would say, there's sort of three things that I talk about. Number one, they have to want something. Number two, they have to have some personality, some character flaw that's holding them back because it's hard to relate to people who are totally awesome and instantly get what they want. Yeah. <laughs> like, who 
are those people? I hate them, right? <laughs> what we love about stories, stories like teach us how to live. And we love stories about people struggling and overcoming, right? right? And so, so that's what is magical about stories. Now, mm -hmm. traditionally, games are not great at delivering flawed characters because players usually don't want to have any flaws. They like love the power fantasy. Right. But you can work around that. This is all about asking better questions early in development, right? So one of the ways you can solve this problem is you can sell the player on a character flaw by turning it into like a gameplay advantage. So I'll give you an example. Like if your character's flaw is that they have a they have an anger management problem, like Kratos in God of War, turns out like that's the part of his tragic story. And in the end, it sort of destroys his life. But early in the game, it makes him an incredible Spartan warrior, which is why that game is so fun to play. Right. So I kind of bought into this fantasy of like, yes, I am the greatest Spartan that lived. You know, and then when like the tragedy of his life unfolds, it's like, oh, yikes. <laughs> Right, but I was I was on board with him. So that's one way to do it. The three things are, and this is the last one is specifically for games. Somebody has to have a want, somebody has to have a flaw, and somebody has to be in the world. And by that I mean, like one of the best ways to create a great character for a game is to really make them mm, deeply connected to the world they're in. So again, Bioshock's a good example. Like Andrew Ryan built Rapture. And so everywhere you went in Rapture, you were kind of interacting with Andrew Ryan in a way, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so that can be, and players pay more attention to the world than they do to any character. Right. And, and I, kind of, I kind of inherently uh, understand the notion of the character flaw. It's kind of like, for me, I would think about it as the difference between Superman versus Spider-Man, right? Like, yeah, I, there you Spider go. Spider-Man is just so much more relatable. Exactly. And so probably more, in my opinion, a uh, character I personally like a lot more. But in terms of like character concepts, maybe the thing, I feel like I don't understand character concepts well. And just taking the superhero example. Yeah. If you were to pitch a character to me where it's like, okay, there's this guy, he drinks super serum, he has a shield, he throws it and bounces like a hundred times off <laughs> of 50 different things and comes back. Or if you said... There's a guy, he's bitten by a spider, and then he shoots webs from his hands. Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> I would have missed out on like a billion dollar character. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. And so this kind of even goes back to what I was saying about maybe some execs don't really understand <laughs> what makes a good story or what makes a good yeah. character. So like, how should for like a dumb exec like me, how should we be thinking about what makes- An overworked exec who's got <laughs> limited time. <laughs> yeah, so how should we be thinking about or how should we think about what makes a good character concept? Totally, totally. So it's such a good question. And, and creatives like to get together and complain about not being understood, but honestly, it is not the creative's job to be understood. It is the creative's job to understand. <laughs> where the execs are coming from and meet them where they're at. Like if our superpower is storytelling, this is where we have to bring it into play, right? Like we have to communicate this in a way that it helps land and make sense. And I love your examples because they're so on point, right? It's exactly right. Like when you talk about Spider-Man in that way, like it's like, ugh, he's kind of <laughs> lame. And he is lame, right? That version of it, because it's kind of like the thing about the way that you evaluate a good character I'm sorry, this is gonna sound a little English teacher, but let me just, this is the best way I know how to express it, is that they have an inner life. It's about what's inside that counts. 
So Spider-Man is interesting, not because of his powers, but because of his struggle. Right. Right. It's about his sense of being small and he's always kind of been this scrappy kid. And then like something, he kind of got in over his head and he made an honest mistake and he's had to carry that with him his whole life. That is very relatable. Right. Very relatable. I'll tell you what, I cannot relate to someone who can shoot spiderwebs out of his hands, <laughs> but I can relate to someone who lives life with a little regret, right. you know, and a desire to be better than he was before. Right. So I think that that's, and that's where the mushy emotional stuff comes in. And I, and it's weird in a business environment or a tech environment to be like feelings, but honestly, like that's the magic that's where you're going to make a connection with your players and they're going to stick with you through thick and thin. And like Marvel's a perfect example. Players fall in love with these characters and they stay with them. And so can you deliver a character who's got like feelings and an inner life and hopes and dreams of his own in a game? hundred percent. The trick is honestly, I'm, this is it. The trick is to, to make the NPCs the really interesting characters. And then you put the player avatar in relationship with them and let the player do whatever they want, but right. make the NPCs really compelling so that, so the player gets to know the NPCs through interacting with them through gameplay. I actually just curious in terms of based on your concept of what makes a good character, just looking at sort of the video game universe of different characters, do you have any specific examples that you would consider to be really good characters in video games? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I, this is such an obvious answer, but you know, Last of Us did a great job. Sure. I also have some like really weird counterintuitive examples. Like okay. I'm really a sucker for um, Katamari Damacy. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, there's like, I tell people that and they're like, there's no story in that game. I'm like, there's just enough story in that game. Like the whole setup is like the king, you know, the insuline prince is you and your father, the king of all cosmos is like in a drunken, you know, mania smashed up the universe. And for some reason, it's your damn job to fix everything. Like that makes me mad. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this king of all cosmos jerk? Why is this my problem? And so I sort of like instantly empathize with this Inchling Prince who sort of takes on his duty and does his thing kind of cheerfully, even though this is really unfair. Like there are these really weird shortcuts into the human heart. And if you, if you know them, you can like, you can deploy them at will to really hook people and get people excited and interested. There's just, there's 7 billion people on this planet. We're all special snowflakes, but we're all hardwired the same way. And so much of being a writer is understanding that psychological wiring right. and figuring out how to tap into it. And I know this sounds kind of weird, but, but that's really what's made my career possible. Okay. And maybe one other question I have as you're developing different characters for a game, when you think about maybe not just a single character, because some mm -hmm. games, especially like Gotcha Collection games, have a cast of characters. How do you think about filling out like that? overall cast rather than thinking about an individual character is there a way we should be yeah. thinking about like the the whole set yeah i think a couple of ways i think about that one is how does this map to something else in the player's life so like are we collecting like figurines like is that kind of the emotional relationship right like if if we're the kind of if we're collecting characters in this game the same way we collect figurines for our for our desk at work 
then maybe all the characters, those characters need to be is like whiz bang, fun to look at, right? Or are we trying to create the feeling of like, you're at a party with like the coolest people in town? In which right. case you need to have more of a person, you need to communicate more personality. But you know, sometimes just good looks are enough. <laughs> so this kind of gets back to that, to what you originally said about story conveying a feeling. And so mm -hmm. the cast of characters, you're trying to convey some sort of image or feeling, it seems like. Is that yeah, exactly. And okay. it's just, and it's a, it's about being honest about the feeling you're going for. Like, there's no shame. I think that where studios can get into trouble is like thinking they're doing one thing, but really they're doing something else. And right. again, the, the way to, to check yourself basically is to see how this maps in real life. Like to my example I just gave, right? It's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to collect cool figurines for your desk. I do it. I'm looking at a monkey right now that I totally love. And I'm very glad this monkey doesn't talk because I just need him to look cute. Like that's his job, right? Or look fun or look powerful, right? Like I just, I, how much does a character need to do? You want to create characters that do their job and that's it. Because it's hard to create characters in games and you don't want to set yourself up to fail. I think doing a small thing well is going to get you more success than really taking a big swing and getting a whiff. Got it. Okay, and then are there general lessons from writing that you think we can apply to games? That's such a good question. This interview is awesome. You've asked really great questions. Thank you for that. This is awesome. I think that the way that writing and games are the same, honestly, is that they both are about problem solving. Okay. Like what writers do all day long is puzzle solve. Right. I mean, at, from a macro to a micro level, from like, what is my story to how do I craft the sentence? The thought process that I use when I do that stuff is the same thought process I use when I'm playing a game. And so they actually have a ton in common. They just are speaking different languages. It's like a French person and a Spanish person getting together. <laughs> and it turns out that they are like soulmates, but they just aren't connecting because they don't understand each other. Right. So if you can sort of build that bridge and find a way to sort of literally speak the same language, the collaborations actually can be incredibly fun. And that's where the innovation is going to happen. And that's where somebody, hopefully somebody listening to this podcast, is going to really break some new ground and find a way to tell stories in a way we've never seen before in, in mobile games. And like, I will play that game all day long. <laughs> and so will a lot of other people. Right. Okay, well, sounds good. I think that's basically all of my questions. I don't know if you have a final message for our audience, or maybe I have one fun, controversial question. Oh, here we go, here we go. I've been having with some of my friends. So like, what did you think of the writing in the last few Star Wars movies? Because I think for me, I, I, I didn't quite like it, but you know, there's, there's a lot of debate and controversy over, over the writing. I know, this is the part where I should be like, oh, we're breaking up, we're breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> oh god well you know it's extra fraught for me i mean i've worked on multiple star wars projects oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah and like my boyfriend was like a diehard star wars fan growing up and then got a job at lucas arts so like my life is sort of like me and that yoda statue over there at the presidio <laughs> yeah i mean i gotta say uh, not the biggest fan didn't think they really hit the you know Here's the thing, honestly, I camped out for three days, three days to, okay. for the prequels. And I can still remember, it was a midnight showing, 
I was a wreck. I was sleep deprived and hungry, but I wanted to see that movie right when it came out. And I can still, it was seven minutes into the movie. And I was like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so disappointed by that, that like, I really kind of like calibrated my expectations ever since. Yeah. So whenever Star Wars can like surprise me, they do. I think that they had a lot of fan burden for sure. Expectations were sky high, you know, and, and it's hard to live up to those expectations. And so now I kind of, I'm hopeful that like the franchise has kind of come full circle and it's kind of free of its burdens in some way because so many people have been disappointed by it. <laughs> but now like I look at something like the Mandalorian and I'm like, that is the shit. Excuse my right. French. That is awesome. Yeah. It's not trying to be like the ultimate story of all stories. You know, it's like, Right. And conversely, like, if like, one of the video game stories I remember the most is just the story from Knights of the Old Republic. I yeah. thought that story was excellent. But yeah. They should make yeah, that into a movie. <laughs> See, you can, you, right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, lightning can strike, magic can happen. But yeah, I mean, I, I try to avoid Star Wars conversations because it's <laughs> such a hot topic. But at the same time, I'm like, look, I can't help it. What can I tell you, man? Like, it is what it is. But the parts that are good about Star Wars are, will always be good. Sure. Like I'll always be grateful for Star Wars. It's it's when it's good, it's amazing. Okay, well, Susan, thank you very much for your time. If there is this game studio out there looking for some help with writing, is there a good way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm always happy to talk to studios, especially to kind of help them think through like how to make it happen. You know, like I'm always happy to jump on the phone with people. So my website is kind of a mouthful. I bought it way back in the day before I realized we'd all be typing all the time. So you can find me online at SusanO'ConnorWriter.com. And I'm sure that my URL is going to be in the show notes too. So yeah, but that's me. And yeah, I would love to talk. Okay. Well, again, thanks for your time. This was a really fascinating discussion for me. I, even though I may not be good at writing or understand writing or characters, I, I'm definitely fascinated by it. So thank you very much again for your time, Susan. Well, you're awesome. Thanks for your questions. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye.